You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On the program, The Doctor is In, the book doctor that is, we talk with author, editor, founding executive editor of the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame and book doctor Donald G. Evans, plus Around the Web, resources for writers, and a bit of my conversation with R&B singer and author Danny Boy Stewart about his scathing autobiography and a quick discussion about audiobooks. But first, a couple of quick announcements from our CWA calendar. The Chicago Writers Association returns to Printer's Row Lit Fest on September 10th and 11th, 2022. All 60 signing slots are currently sold out. If you would like to be on the waiting list in the event of an author cancellation, send an email to info at chicagorights.org with the subject heading, Add Me to the Printer's Row Waitlist. If spots do open up, we will offer them in the waitlist order in which they are received at the same $50 price via a PayPal invoice. Email info at chicagorights.org with the subject heading, Add Me to the Printer's Row Waitlist. Visit chicagorights.org for more details. The Chicago Writers Association 7th Annual First Chapter Contest will be open for entries beginning in August. The contest is open to members only. Look for the official announcement at our website, social media, and newsletter. Judging is based on elements that should be found in a first chapter, including a good opening hook, strong characterizations, compelling voice, conflict dialogue, and no grammatical or mechanical errors. Judges will also be looking at your presentation, if a submission followed the rules, submitted in the correct format, and if the manuscript is at the appropriate length. Generally, judges are looking for an entry with a fresh idea, presented with clarity, structure, and elements of exceptional writing. Visit chicagorights.org for more information. The exclusive online magazine of the Chicago Writers Association, Wright City Magazine, welcomes fiction, nonfiction, and quality poetry. Wright City Magazine is currently open for submissions. Visit the submission guidelines page for details at chicagorights.org. You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Donald G. Evans is the founding executive editor of the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame, author of the novel Good Money After Bad, and editor of the Chicago Cubs anthology, Cubby Blues, 100 Years of Waiting Until Next Year. Are we going to have to wait another 100 years? Well, I don't think so, but um, it, won't be, it won't be anytime soon. <laughs> All right. His short story collection, An Off-White Christmas, is simply an essential holiday reading, but listen to this. I managed to get lucky once again when Don Evans agreed to critique my manuscript, Luck is a Talent. His suggestions and editorial comments not only improved my book, but they also made me a better writer and boosted my confidence. Thank you, Don. That's from Gary V. Johnson, 
author of Luck is a Talent and the 2021 Book of the Year Award for uh, winner for Indie Nonfiction. The doctor is in, brother. The website is donaldgevans.com. That is, uh, that's incredible praise. Yeah, Gary is a very good writer and he's a smart and uh, generous man. I was lucky enough to get hired to work with him of identifying ways to and strategies to make it better. And uh, this is always, not always, but it's often a very tough moment for a writer who doesn't realize all of the opportunity and potential that lies ahead. Because I think it's just difficult, especially for for younger writers, not necessarily young in age, but writers who have untested. Yeah, untested writers to to realize that what they think is almost a finished book is really just a finished um, draft. I read Gary's book. There's a reason it was chosen as uh, CWA's book of the year. Uh, one of the book of the year winners for for 2021. He credits you. It's uh, and in no uncertain certain terms. We 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 did a podcast with Gary, uh, and and he said right out, all credit goes to to Don Evans. Uh, but he but he himself wrote an incredible book. It's nonfiction dealing with a with a real death penalty case where facts are imperative, and there's not a lot of room for for embellishment or, or changing, uh, changing events or changing, uh, changing the pace of events. The story is always paramount. Uh, take us through how, how you approach uh, a manuscript like Gary's. Well, every manuscript is, is unique. And uh, Gary's was a, a while ago, I think four or five mm-hmm. years ago when I worked on it, something mm-hmm. like that. And Uh, You know, what I saw was that, you know, Gary had an opportunity to tell the story of this case, but it was also his own story. Yeah. The story of him as a lawyer and uh, the things that that made it compelling, because um, one of the first things I told Gary was that, you know, the case itself was was old news, um, which is not to say that people were still not interested in it, but just to retell the story that had already been told. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been told in newspaper reports that had been told in longer form. He had an advantage of having participated in the case and been the lead um, attorney. So I, I think that one of the first things I told Gary was that this is your story. And we want, you know, if this story is going to work, if it's going to be interesting for people, they want to know what motivates you, what your stories are. And so then um, from there, it changed a little bit of the dynamic, uh, the yeah. point of view, the voice. Um, it- was his original telling of the story sort of sort of this uh, coldly lawyeristic treatment? And was was it your idea to add that personal element or 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 had he had he added the personal element that you just strengthened it? Yeah, no, he had a, a lot of those elements were already there. He had okay. think for you know, for storytelling. Okay. Um, in fact, he had uh, sort of structured it so that there were these anecdotes that uh, just about the law yeah, that, yeah. Um, that like kind of segued between chapters. But what I did was I pushed him to, to be much more introspective about his own role, mm-hmm. that on his family on him, what it meant to him, why he was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, to dig a little, de- delve a little bit deeper as you say, the, the case was the case and that, you know, not, not that that doesn't take skill to tell because mm-hmm. it does to try to be, you know, um, 
economical mm -hmm. to try to use all the facts of the case and the elements of the trial that were pertinent and those that weren't leave them on cutting room floor, but to weave in mm -hmm. uh, the backstory. So I think that was part of uh, what we talked about in, in early on was how to sort of seamlessly weave his backstory into yeah. the story without overloading the narrative with information. In other words, you've got the whole story to tell. You've got yeah. this trial that took years and within the course of telling that story, tried to identify places to then weave in his backstory, his motivation, his character, his um, hopes and dreams, why, you know, he was um, committed to this. And so I think it was, it was really, a lot of the lessons were about how do you do that? How do you, mm -hmm. you know, tell your own story without taking us away from the surface story, which is the trial. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little bit of an unorthodox book. Uh, it, it's structured a little bit uh, in an unorthodox way. And, and, and I'll give this, this one example. There's a, a scene, it's, it's dialogue between him and a judge uh, that's taken verbatim from the trial transcript in which he, he's, he, he ends up spending a night in jail for contempt. But that happens so fast in that, in that dialogue between him and the judge that you feel that immediacy you feel the power of that moment. And, and when that gavel comes down, it resonates. It resonates in your soul. Did that, that sort of unorthodox structure to the book, did that present any, any challenges to you? The scene you're talking about, I remember the scene. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the, the lesson there was um, that even though this is nonfiction, uh -huh. all story relies upon conflict and tension yeah and so yeah. Um, you have conflict that has to be uh, overcome you have um you know tension that the, the reader has to to feel that carries the plot forward advising him as i do with all of my clients um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to try to make the scene faster but then also not to skip over you know some parts that seem well they might seem um like a sidebar, but they're really important. And, you know, what I, I, I remember telling him about that was that you being in jail is a really important moment because now, you know, for the first time maybe, or, you know, close to it, hmm. uh, you get to understand at least a little bit, you know, um, what's at stake, you know, because that's the other thing that every story relies on is that silently the reader is asking themselves well what's at stake here you know what what's to gain what's to lose mm -hmm. in that moment i think gary had this opportunity which you know was presented to him and not you know not that he wanted it but to to really start to understand what was at stake for you know for for the the trial yeah that that moment solidifies his investment yes <laughs> All this brings us to, to Don's Manuscript Repair Shop. Tell us about your, uh, your Manuscript Repair Shop. I pieced together a living. Uh -huh. um, and I, you know, I found it and I run the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. Yep. That does not um, support me enough to, to not do other things. So I, I teach some, I do some ghostwriting, and then um, I do what some people refer to as manuscript development. 
I, you know, I don't know what the, the proper term is because it's not a, a one size fits all, mm-hmm. but um, I, you know, I, I've known for a while that this is something that I'm good at. Mm-hmm. I sort of enjoy, I like working with other authors and because I have a lot going on, I can be a little bit choosy about the projects that I, I yeah. you know, sign on for because, um, you know, I just simply don't have the time to do everything that comes my way. And so, you know, if I think that there's a, an opportunity for success, then, then it can be a really, you know, worthwhile project, uh, both because it pays a little bit of money and because I feel like it's, um, it's worth doing from, you know, the client's point of view. Uh, so somebody t- like- tell, tell us what the difference is between a book doctor and, and an editor, I guess, well, that is, is probably the best place to start. Yeah, well, an, an editor is, um, uh, there's different levels of editorial uh, input, mm-hmm. uh, but an editor is, is traditionally means the person who is assigned to work with a finished manuscript. Mm-hmm. Now, some editors are more aggressive than others. Commonly, you know, at the, at the upper echelons of the literary world, the editors are not, they're, they're doing more cosmetic editing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more than proofreading. Mm-hmm. They will identify, you know, uh, sections or parts of the book, and they might send it back to the author to say, hey, you know, this is, um, this is something that uh, doesn't work here. You know, this is confusing, but they're going through the whole manuscript. They're making sure that all of the details add up. They're consistent. The style's consistent. The, um, all the cosmetic stuff, that the punctuation, uh, not that the punctuation has to be standard, but it has to be purposeful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an editor might question like, well, you, you know, you use this non-conventional spelling was that purposeful and why, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, mm-hmm. you're doing this, you must have a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And maybe they didn't get that, you know, and then that's a discussion. Yeah. So in the traditional sense, the editor is kind of an advisor and somebody that's really responsible for making sure that the manuscript before it goes out in the world, before it goes into print, mm-hmm. that it is um, tight and um, ready, you know, ready for consumption. You know, the book doctor uh, as, you know, uh, which I just, used as a kind of a funny, clever term on my website. But what I'm doing is, is taking a manuscript, or even sometimes the manuscript's not quite complete, but it's um, a work in progress, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm starting with a, a critique of all of the things that are working, all the you know great elements of the book, and then all the things that are either not working or all the opportunities that can be utilized as as the writer starts to make the book better. So the understanding is that it's a longer process of redrafting, bringing the manuscript to the highest level that that author is capable of doing. Okay. That's not the same for everybody. You know, some people have more skill than than others, but to try to maximize their own potential. If you Google book doctor, a whole bunch of bunch of listings will come up and, and they all have somewhat similar descriptors uh, about, about what they do. What you've just said is probably the most succinct and clarifying definition of a book doctor. And, and just to put this in, in, in order. So an editor would be 
would, would be someone that works with an author after a book is completed. You're getting to that person as they're as they're completing their story, but their story isn't isn't at that editor level yet. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you know, it might be a complete draft. It often uh -huh, is, uh -huh. but it's not a, a completed final draft. So the, the word final draft is, you know, you use that as an author when you yeah. have exhausted your limits. Now, your editor might might find that you still have more ways that you can improve the book. Mm -hmm. but for the most part, especially, like I say, in the upper echelons, if, you know, if there's a top writer, the editor's not generally making a large changes mm -hmm. um, or suggesting large changes. Now, of course, we all hear about um, some of the editors of the past who, you know, have have been more aggressive, more um, uh, insistent on, mm -hmm. you know, injecting their own uh, opinions and the author works with them well, right? I mean, yeah. we've heard about those those others of the past gordon lish was one of them who who uh, apparently when he was working with raymond carver often gave raymond you know heavy notes and sometimes changed the nature of the story by his input but generally speaking the editor is 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 accepting the fact that this is a, a very close to complete book and now they're spending a little bit more time to make sure that the editorial process ensures that everything is buttoned down consistent that whatever opportunities that you know there might be some redundancies that the editor might identify and then at the back end you have proofreaders who are really just focused on the cosmetic right, um, right. you know the surface uh, you know the mechanics the grammar the punctuation the style and so forth that you know the 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 format the layout and and all that stuff but you know editors will you know sometimes not like a title and they might mm -hmm. suggest that the author use a different title. Um, so, you know, it, there's a range, there's a spectrum of, but an editor generally won't help an author or, or prospective author fully realize their story. They're, they're, they're more interested in, in the grammar and mechanics and, and what have you. Right. The, the, well, an editor, a traditional editor will not accept a book if it is not, in publishable form or very yeah close yeah form. yeah so um what i most of the time all the time i would say mm -hmm. when i work with a client the the book that i see initially is is not anywhere near ready for publication okay there are layers and layers of drafts that still need to be done before it can possibly get to that point now, when you say, you know, Gary Johnson um, credits me, mm -hmm. the caveat there is that the author is responsible. So even if I make, and I think I often do, even if I make astute, clear recommendations, even if I identify these opportunities, even if I'm very um, articulate about, you know, suggesting strategies for making the book better, mm -hmm. Ultimately, that all goes back to the author. If they can't convert that into better writing, better structure, better, you know, a faster pace, everything that I'm suggesting, mm -hmm. they have to be able to translate that. Right, right. Uh, and, and that was what I really credited Gary for, because, you know, I also, also do a lot of ghostwriting. 
And when I, when he first, you know, brought me the book and I did the critique, you know, Gary, I could probably, you know, just rewrite this for you and it would take a couple of months. It's going to take you a couple of years. And he said, Don, I got to do this myself. This is my book yeah. my name on it. And I got to do it myself. Yeah. And, you know, I respected that. And, and, you know, but I still didn't know. I knew Gary was really smart. I knew he was really determined. I still didn't know if he would be able to execute and to do all the work that was uh, needed. Um, yeah. But but he did, as you know. And so that you know that ultimately, that's all you know. Gary Johnson. Now, I, yeah. I, my part in it was, I think I gave him some really good advice. And when he talks about like uh, learning about writing, well, I, I feel like that's just naturally part of the process. Is that sometimes I'm just planning mm -hmm. to. Um, a writer who, because of my experience, I, I can give them some insight into what the thought process is, what we're talking about. Sometimes just labeling things, unless you've gone to school for it, you know, we don't really need to know the labels, but it's makes it easier to talk about it. Let me, you know? let me ask you, let me ask you this. Uh, we spoke with Mary Dean Kaysan, uh, who was one of the Chicago Writers Association first chapter uh, contest winners for this year. And we, we were talking about storytelling traditions. And I, I'm working on a book about the history of light for the artist. And, and part of that is that I believe, and, and I, I lay it out in the book, that storytelling is where we began as a species, before visual arts, before anything else. Uh, we were telling stories about about the sun and the, and, and the, the hunt and the harvest and, and all these. So all, all these things before, before we move to, to visual arts and to music and what have you, we have built into our DNA, this innate storytelling structure that we understand resolution and satisfaction and 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 even even some drama some climax and uh and maybe comedic element and all these but we we understand basic story structure however as steve martin is famously uh quoted as saying in planes trains and automobiles when you tell a story have a point and some people can get to a story and not be able to finish it. Where do you, as, as a book doctor, draw a line be between your own editorial ideas or storyline ideas and, and an author's? Well, I, one of the most important things is to accept and understand and um, internalize the author's vision. Mm-hmm. Because it's not my vision. It's mm -hmm. not my creation. Um, I am trying to help the author to realize their vision. And so the first part of it, that's why I almost always begin with a thorough critique and review uh -huh. of, of the book, because I have to read it. I, I often get people that are like, well, what do you charge? You know, what, what's your rates? You know, what, uh, you know, this person told me that. And I was like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what can we do? I can't tell you anything until I read it. You okay. know, just I, I don't know if you're a good writer, a bad writer, if you're a genius, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what the story is, yeah. whether it's compelling. I don't know whether it's a worthwhile project. So or... what, what should an author 
ask you before or ask ask a book doctor before before hiring one and when should they ask those questions what they need to know is if they can trust the person if the person that's working with them mm -hmm. is the right fit you know there there are some authors that come to me that you know it's it's not they could find somebody that's a better fit somebody that yeah. you know, um understands what they're trying to do better than maybe I would. And, the relationship and, is important. And relationship is important, right? And so you have to trust that. And, um, you know, I've had authors who are getting a million different opinions. You know, they've hired me, but they're taking classes and workshops and they're hiring other people and everything. And so naturally, you're getting different advice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've told these authors, you know, you you should either trust me or you should not work with me because, because what I'm telling you is, I believe, absolutely good advice that's going to make the book better. But if you're, if you're getting contradictory advice, it's because somebody else has a different interpretation, a different vision. It mm -hmm. might be good advice. It might be a different way for you to go with the book. Mm -hmm. It might be perfectly successful, but I don't think it's going to be successful if you're trying to do all things for all people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the relationship really is. And so were you to, you know, send out your manuscript and um, one of the big publishers, uh, Simon and Schuster, somebody accepts it, you get assigned, you get assigned an editor. In lieu of that, um, that person becomes me if you hire me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a champion of your book. Does the person that you're hiring, do they believe that this can be successful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think honesty is really important. And I, you know, I learned that through some of the greats because when I was at Syracuse University in the MFA program studying fiction writer, um, mm -hmm. Tobias Wolf, who was my, um, wow, he was my mentor and he was my academic advisor. Stephen Dobbins was there. Lynn McFall, who was um, mm -hmm. a great novelist and mm -hmm. she was a philosophy and fiction class. And I became friends with her all three of them had something in common, which, which is rare. And that was that they were just brutally honest, um, not in an uncaring way, but because they cared enough to, to tell you exactly what they thought. And so sometimes, you know, uh, I've had people hire me and I, you know, do a manuscript review. And I say, mm -hmm. this is not a book that you should be writing. You know, you're not equipped to do this. You're not uh, you know, expert at this, mm -hmm. there are so many people that would write this book better, find a different book to write, you know, mm -hmm. find a book that you, that you have some, you know, unique advantages for, you know, and I always think about that myself before I enter any kind of project is what do I bring to this project mm -hmm. that um, nobody or at least very few people could bring to it. I have to have some advantages because I don't feel like it's worthwhile to tell a story that has already been told by somebody that's done it better, you know, yeah. and done a definitive version of it. And I don't see any value in that because, um, it, you know, we all know, or we should know if we don't, that the odds of you hitting a big payday from your book, are very low. Yeah. And, you know, if you're lucky, 
and persistent. I'm not saying there's not a lot of different strategies and, and, and ways to improve your chances of selling a book, but I, I don't see hardly anybody who says, well, this is the kind of book that I'm going to write because it's going to be a bestseller. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. you know it, it, I think the people that are writing best-selling books, they're really good at it. You know, mm-hmm. it may not even be great literature, but they're very good at that book in part because they love that kind of book. Mm-hmm. They love writing that kind of book. That's the kind of book that they want to write. Uh, let's take somebody like Scott Turow. You know, he could he could write anything he he wanted to write. He could do it very well because he is incredibly gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's talented. He's smart. He's disciplined. His work ethic is off the charts. Um, his, his, uh, the way his brain works is, is rare. So he could do anything he wants, but he loves those legal thrillers and he was, you know, drawn to them and he gravitated toward them. You know, I've talked to him before and he says, you know, his own reading tends toward the much more serious literature, mm-hmm. but he likes writing these books and he gravitated toward it. And that's partly what made him so successful and and you know he's one of the lucky ones but i think that that is something that is a byproduct rather than you know something that you build into your the goal the goal is always to tell the story not to cash the check yeah and and i think you know we all would like to we would all like like to have that bestseller yeah we you know it would be great and and some people that can sustain you for for the months or years it takes to write a book and when you're face down in that page going line by line word by word that fantasy of a paycheck uh, or a big or a big payoff is uh is light years away yeah and it, it, if at all and it usually is not at all yeah, um, yeah. and and um almost always is not at all mm-hmm. you know you have to be able to have the motivation and the inspiration yeah and 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 be able to convince yourself that this is something that you want and need to do. And, and so the story has to be important to you um, for whatever reason I'm not, I'm using important. Uh, it could be a romance. It could be a comedy, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but that's important to you because it's the kind of book you love. And, you know, I, you, you know, there's the famous quote by Toni Morrison. You should always write the book that you want to read, but hasn't been written yet. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's part of the process. So that's part of also what I do with clients too, is, um, is I try, uh, and some, like I say, every client's different. I just try to give them some direction mm-hmm. and advice about the process. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, because I, I know from a lot of my own experience and others that doing it in fits and starts, you know, generally that book doesn't get done, or if it does get done, it takes a, a, uh, you know, decades. Yeah. Um, but if you're, even if it's only a little bit of time, if you're, if you're consistently working on it, working on it, working on it, this is a going project. Yeah. yeah. You're going to keep going until it's done. It will get done. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But if you are working on it this month, but not the next couple months, yeah, you're in a lot of ways, you're starting over when you go back to the book, you know, you've got to reread it and you got to, the book is the project's got to be sacred. Otherwise, yeah. you know, the chances of you completing it 
are, are almost, almost obsessive or may, maybe actually obsessive. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, like with Gary's book, you know, he, he was determined to, to do everything that needed to be done until it was the book that he felt was the best book he could produce. And that's what he mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. um, that part is less about talent and more about organization, mm -hmm. uh, motivation, discipline, you know, some of the really successful writers, you know, I don't look at their talent as being anything rare, but I do look at their discipline as their work ethic and their yeah. work ethic. And, and, and so mm -hmm. and we look at some of the prolific mm -hmm. authors, um, you know, they don't ever question that the work is going to get done. You know, mm -hmm. they know when it's going to get done. They know how it's going to get done and they know that they're going to put the work in and, and, and that means sometimes, you know, going to the computer, spending a good part of the day, accomplishing almost nothing, literally like in terms of like the, the useful pages you write, yeah, yeah. but because you've done it and you're going to do it again tomorrow, you're going to have days that are much more productive and you're going to, you're going to move forward. And so sometimes it's just knowing that you have to, to continuously be doing it. Otherwise the whole project kind of becomes dormant. Are you, are you one of those authors that's always working in the, that you, you move from project to project, you finish a project, you move right to another project. Maybe you've got a couple, couple projects going simultaneously, or, or are you the kind of author that focuses on a project and then, and then you sort of, you sort of need to clean your palate a little bit and ramp up to that, that next story. Well, my, my best work is done when I have a project that I'm dedicated to and I'm not letting okay. um, other projects interfere, but okay. the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame is a, you know, it's an ongoing project and sure. there's all sub projects. So I'm constantly involved in those, which that detracts from me being dedicated to just one work. Now, you know, you've got to fit these things into your own reality. Mm -hmm. so, um, there aren't that many people who have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm only going to work on this book. A lot of people have, you know, full-time jobs and they have families and yeah. they have responsibilities that um, they can't ignore. But there, but there are car, there are carve outs. That, that people, uh, accommodations people make with their schedule to, to write. Yes, exactly. And mm -hmm. so um, whether that's early in the morning or late at night or whether, you know, I know people that go to um, writer's retreats and really, you know, try to use that week or two to, yeah. to really get a heroic amount of work done on a draft um, yeah. when they isolate it and really turn everything else off. Everybody has to figure out what works for them. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's different for different people. You know, some, I've talked to authors who say, I always know the first line. Some say, I always know the last line. Some people work with an outline. Uh, there's no right and wrong answers. It's, um, yeah. you have to come up with that. You know, talking about the work I do with authors, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm trying to teach them these things because, they have not figured them out yet because mm -hmm. they're still, you know, relatively novice. It might be 
somebody who has been a journalist and is trying to write a book or somebody who's been a teacher trying to write a book or um, somebody who's, you know, written a little bit of poetry or short stories, but never did anything in a long form. They haven't gone through the process of figuring out how they can be successful. So what I um, am trying to do because they're paying me. So it's sort of like, you know, it's like you get in a cab and the meter's running. Yeah. And you don't want to take the long way around the park. I want to try to help them as much as possible to get through the work in a, in a way that expedites it. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is, you know, lessons that hopefully will be long-term lessons. So well after we're done with this book and they're on to their next book, hopefully those things will be more a part of their, you know, DNA as a writer. During the course of that, all of these other kind of conversations and lessons happen organically because it does become a very intense relationship between me and the client. You know, one of, one of the things that, that I do in my podcast talking with, with authors is I'm, I'm constantly asking every single author about their process, about their work ethic, about if they outline or don't outline, where characters come from, how they structure characters, the time of day that, that works best for them, time carve-outs and, and accommodations, things like that. I think you're right that a lot of authors, a lot of new authors, or a lot of, a lot of authors who aren't necessarily connected with other writers view their circumstance as unique. They don't have that perspective on how other writers create or, or, or work a project. Giving them that full spectrum of strategies and techniques, whether it's intuitive, you know, if, if you, you write a char- you, you come up with a character and you build a novel from that character intuitively, or you're one of these people that outlines everything that those are important lessons for for every writer to to know do you agree i do yeah um the and and it's not necessarily that you have to replicate the way you do things every time you do a new project right but you do have to undergo a lot of trial and error to figure out the things that definitely work for you and things that don't. Like, for example, I'm not very productive when there's people around. Mm-hmm. Well, like some people are like, like to write in a cafe or they go, you know, I like to be in a room where the doors are all closed and, and I f- I'm isolated. And I know that like, y- you know, and when I was younger, I had all the, yeah, I was like, oh, you know, it'll be great as a writer, you could travel and you could write, you know, on, uh, you know, you could write on the deck in, um, in uh-huh. Mexico and you can write by the pool and, you know, and, but, you know, and I did all that and found that, you know, like what I got from laying around the pool with a notebook and pen was sunburn <laughs> um, and, and very little usable writing. Yeah. Um, because there are, for me, I think it's a po- process of immersing myself in my, in my fictional world. Mm-hmm. So um, when I'm sitting 
in a cafe or around a pool or even at home when, you know, uh, Margaret or Dusty are coming in and out, it breaks that spell. Yeah. You know, um, and the reality is all around you. And also your reality is often that there's all kinds of stuff that people want you to do and you feel like you should should do so if you're not for me if i'm not isolated Mm -hmm. i feel like i got to take out the garbage i feel like i gotta (laughs) you know go get the milk because you know there's no you know milk for the tea i feel like uh you know the the bell's ringing and i gotta go get it and you know and so um the 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 work you do is all are you know it's all a construct Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. create a, a story you're it's this artificial thing that you're trying to make um appear as if it's not an artifice the process for me is a, is sort of similar that i have to convince myself and create this sense that what i'm doing is real and it's not um fictional especially if you don't have a book contract with deadlines yeah but if you're working on a project where you don't have that, which is a lot of people, most people, then you have to still put yourself in a place where you say, this is what I need to do right now. And I needed to do this by then, you know, and, and if I don't, then there'll be consequences, you yeah. know, and you, you, you can't remind yourself that there are no consequences because Nobody's waiting for your book. I wanted to, to go back to something that you talked about a, a moment ago, or, or at least highlight something that you talked about, that introspection and, and deep thought, especially in quiet places, is, is the, the least valued aspect of writing, but it's probably the most important aspect of writing. Do you agree? Yeah, and I, I don't know if I'd call it deep thought necessarily, um, but it's exploration. You yeah, talked yeah. you talked a little bit about uh, how storytelling has been a part of the human uh, experience, you know, mm-hmm. since the beginning. Partly that's because there's an instinct to try to figure things out. Um, so mythology is all based on trying mm-hmm. to explain what at the time was unexplainable. You know, yeah. you in the sun yeah you know like of course now we have scientific you know data and explanation for what you know for thing for natural phenomenon like that but but so our stories are just more complex (laughs) but the stories we're trying to explain they're trying to explore like yeah yeah uh, you know all of these things that were happening which include the natural world but also include emotions you know um i mean you know the two you know, biggest um, subjects of mm-hmm. literature are love and death. And um, because they're so hard to explain. And yeah. so rather than deep thought, I would say, you know, you're trying to explore, you know, and so that I think that's the biggest fallacy for young writers is that a, a lot of people when I hear them talking about the book that they're gonna, they're gonna write if they only can have a little bit of time, right? there seems to be this false premise that the book is already here. We already know everything we need to know, and then yeah. we're going to put it on paper. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but rather you go through the process of figuring it out. You're, you're figuring out the story, you're figuring out the characters, you're exploring what you think. And, 
and by the time you get through the writing, mm-hmm. then your thoughts and your ideas and 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 everything is much more sophisticated because you've gone through the process of spending all that time uh-huh. trying to write through it. Writing then, teaches us just how incomplete those those first thoughts are. Right. And but the, the great advantage of writing is that you get to keep working on it until yeah. you get it as close to perfect as possible. Unlike, um, well, unlike this conversation or any conversation where, you know, when we finish here, I'll say, oh, I wish I had said this instead of that, or I wish I had said this better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in writing, you get to keep working on it until you do say it exactly how you want to say it mm-hmm. or your characters say it. I've always had a, an inclination toward comic writing. Uh, not that, you know, I'm necessarily writing strictly comic things, but it's always an element that mm-hmm. I that I, you know, both in my life and in my writing. Um, but I, I could say it's it's an element of your personality, brother. Yeah, well, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just come out of the page. Yeah, you have to until you get the, the rhythm right, the, the punchline, the, you know, if I'm mm-hmm. trying to turn an anecdote into something, uh, you know, to a story, you got to keep working through it. I do anyway, until I get it right. And that process um, is what enables me to finally hit the funny parts, you know, and do it right. So again, you know, I, I just think that it's, um, you know, I can't do that when I'm distracted by everything around me. And it doesn't automatically just, it's automatically does not come off in the same way that it is in my head. So, you you know, you said deep thoughts. It's really just trying to get back to the place where, you know, you're trying to capture an essence, not necessarily trying to literally record something that happened, Mm -hmm. but you're trying to get that essence, you know, and that sometimes it's not literally the dialogue. It's the mannerisms or the uh, facial expressions or the attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the kind of things that you have to explore. Donald G. Evans is an author, book doctor, ghostwriter, and the founding executive editor of the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. The website is donaldgevans.com. We'll link to that in the notes below. Thank you so much. Yeah, and don't forget that the new poetry anthology just came out. And wherever out. I'm at, I have it right here. We are gonna we're gonna talk with one of the uh, one of the artists and and a writer, um, a poet, and uh, and you on Saturday again, brother. So people people have to tune in for for that as well. Wherever I'm at, an anthology with uh, with a great. This is a wonderful cover, by the way true confession here i have the pdf of the book i am not cracking this book because i don't want to bend it i don't want to break it i, I barely want to hold it um just because I, I it's it's beautiful tony fitzpatrick does the cover it's an astounding it, it, it's worth the price of the book just for the cover yeah it, it, he does fantastic work and that that piece of art really fit what we were trying to do i love that he has 
his own Chicago poem built into yeah. the artwork of the cover. And so couldn't have been more perfect. And, and I, did, did, did he do this specifically for the book or was this, was this no, something that just worked? There was something that just worked. I, I don't think you could have commissioned a better piece. And it's a good thing because I couldn't afford to commission Tony Fitzpatrick, <laughs> um, but he's uh, very generous as well as uh, just a, such a great artist. Yeah, he's a he's a good guy and a Chicago icon. Uh, as are you, my friend. We, we'll we'll talk to you very very soon. Okay, great. Thanks. Good talking to you. And we'll you have- too, brother. Before we go, a few stories from around the web that caught our eye. From entrepreneur.com, three tips for writing when you don't feel like it. A guide to help content writers and creative writers break out of the writing slump and get back to creating great work. This is from an article by Scott Baradell, July 11th, 2022. We often struggle to write because we overthink getting the words right, Baradell writes. It's good to care about your prose, but this concern when left unchecked, can lead to a mental block. Free writing is an exercise, he says, that can help you overcome this. Without thinking, set a timer for 20 minutes and start writing about anything. Give yourself the freedom to say any old rubbish. If your brain goes blank at the thought of this, write, I can't think of anything to say because... dot dot dot, and see where it leads you. Once the timer is up, Read it over if you wish. You might surprise yourself with what you've written. But don't worry if none of it makes any sense. The point is not to create content, but to trick your mind into getting into the flow of writing, which you can then use to get back into your work. You can read the full piece at entrepreneur.com, and we'll post that in the notes below. A piece in Psychology Today from Kristen Meekoff, author of A Widow's Guide to Healing, caught our attention. Here are seven things to know when it comes to writing and publishing a book. This was posted July 25th, 2022, by the way, in psychologytoday.com. Kristen writes, Nothing in my educational career or professional experiences prepared me for the publishing industry. It was a baptism of fire sort of thing. With my undergraduate training in psychology and then my graduate work in the helping profession, I was taught how to be empathetic and display compassion. My initial experiences with the media and book world were anything but a warm welcome. I remember an initial gut punch with a public relations woman who worked with several respectable authors. After reviewing some of my writing samples, she said, I knew that you were on a learning curve, but I didn't know that you were at the bottom of it. Wow. One of seven tips she offers is this important advice. Moonshot mindset matters. Some may see becoming a first-time author or writing another book as a moonshot opportunity, but I knew focusing on my passion project and getting results, i.e. completing a chapter, getting an interview done, would bring fulfillment. Whenever I created an opportunity by reaching out to someone, i.e. cold call, email, I imagined success. This didn't mean a favorable reply every time, but 90% of my efforts succeeded. Exploring new things affected me in positive ways that encouraged me to nurture more relationships.
Then there is this in our constantly changing world of writing from John Domini, writing at LitHub, January 25th, 2022, Renaissance of the Weird, Experimental Fiction as the New American Normal. Author Colson Whitehead wrote the novel that may rank among his most celebrated, The Underground Railroad, which also represents his wildest Rube Goldberg contraption. And Whitehead hardly stands alone, even setting aside the so-called Afrofuturists like N.K. Geminism and her alternate worlds, many of the recent knockout fictions from black Americans display a glittering eccentric streak, like Paul Beatty's The Sellout from 2015. Domini rightly points out that experimental fiction writing has always been with us. Underpinning that is the inescapable view that the modern writer owes everything to the constantly expanding frontiers of our craft. I have two recommendations for experimental fiction. Dictionary of Khazars by Milorad Pavic from 1989. The dictionary is an imaginary book of knowledge of the Khazars, a people who flourished somewhere beyond Transylvania between the 7th and 9th centuries. Eschewing conventional narrative and plot, this lexicon novel combines the dictionaries of the world's three major religions with entries that leap between past and future. Featuring three unruly wise men, a book printed in poison ink, suicide by mirrors, a chimerical princess, a sect of priests who can infiltrate one's dreams, and romances between the living and the dead or Einstein's Dreams by Harvard physicist Alan Lightman, a series of vignettes about how perceptions of time resonates in our lives. A link to these stories are in the notes below. And finally, a few thoughts on the emerging audiobook field and a conversation I had on my Playtime podcast with R&B singer-songwriter and now author Danny Boy Stewart. Stewart was an American Idol contestant and performed for Death Row Records alongside Tupac Shakur and Snoop Dogg, just to name a few. His autobiography is stranded on Death Row. Here is a part of that conversation. I went through this book five times, man. And and I've got I've got notes I've got dog-eared pages I've got I, I wrote as much in this book as you did just about oh wow okay <laughs> <laughs> I see and and it was it was a great read so Thank you me. pack a lot of living into forty six years man I can't wait for the se- uh, for the sequel wow wow yes <laughs> I'm excited I'm actually working on the audio version of it now so are you really. Uh, I'm really excited about that as well. I'm working on an audio version of one of my novels, and my uh, my former co-host Carrie Kendall is is a big big devotee of of audiobooks, and she warned me against adding uh, sound effects. But I I'm thinking that that would be a positive for for you to add little bits of music or or. Uh, how was that coming together? Also, I was thinking at first to put some songs in it, but you know, as I'm talking about uh, the book, as I go through the chapter, yeah, and I started speaking on songs that I sang on or featured on, yeah, uh, I sing a little bit of, I, I sing a little bit of it just so I can just take people back there, yeah, you know, to the to kind of refresh their memory with it as well, yeah. So I'm trying to be as creative 
as possible with it. But I, I also understand that as uh, uh, the audiobooks are done a certain way as well, and I don't want to I don't want to tamper with the real readers and listeners, uh, giving them too much, you know, too much to on, on their plan. Except that music is such a big, big part of your your life and your experience that I, I, I think people would benefit from you pushing the envelope a little bit, take them on that ride. Wow. Just, yes. I look forward to that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just just a thought. I, and and I, I talk with lots and lots of authors, some who are in the middle of producing audiobooks and, and all that. I think it's really an underrealized art form and, and people can make it. We, we produced a play on the radio, uh, The Virginian, and I put sound effects underneath it. And, and for, for one scene, you know, there's a campfire scene near the middle. I used 33 layers of sound to put this together. And, and I, I think theater houses are, are doing this, particularly in the age of COVID. They're doing this more and more often where they're, where they're, they're layering sound underneath, underneath the, the, uh, the dialogue and creating that world and i think i think audiobooks are are ripe for that yes yeah. all right so i'm taking notes i'm taking notes over here good man good man all right all right uh so let, let me start with this uh, i've seen a lot of interviews with you i published a memoir some years back and i've talked to a lot of authors how did you come to the decision not to pull any punches because it doesn't seem like you censored yourself for the content a whole lot. You told it like it is and like it happened. And how, how did you come to rendering people in the book as honestly as, as you perceive them, either good or negative? Well, this book is all about being transparent Yeah, and sharing my journey. And that was really hard because I didn't, first off, I didn't want anyone to feel disrespected as, as far as the things that I've talked about and mm-hmm. people that I mentioned. But again, it was very important for me to be Danny and to say it my way, the way that I think things should be said, you know, especially yeah. if you're explaining that moment and how you truly feel in that moment. Is there things that I would recant and probably say a little nicer <laughs> now that you know that I'm a little older and yeah, maybe so, maybe a few things, but then it wouldn't be that that book that I think, you know, it's like taking a horror story or, or a movie and saying, hey, let's just take the horror part out of it and leave everything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, I think that's what made a great book for my for myself, to tell the true story and to tell it like it is. And it was my only opportunity to be a rapper at this time. Like a since I was on death row, let's go ahead. I can't rap any verses, but I'll go ahead and rap these verses through, you know, through these chapters of my life. And that full interview with Danny Boy Stewart is on my Playtime podcast at podbean.com. That does it for this episode. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our featured guests are in the notes below, as well as links to the Chicago Writers Association. Support this podcast by simply clicking the subscribe button to receive notification about all of our upcoming episodes, upcoming events, and programs from the Chicago Writers Association, chicagowrites.org. Thank you.
Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Lovchich. Find Dino's music on YouTube and on Spotify. <laughs>